Good evening and welcome to tonight's episode of The Mary Trump Show. I am incredibly fortunate to have as my guest tonight, Dan Goldman, who is an assistant district attorney in the Southern District of New York under Preet Bahara for 10 years. Uh, he was the lead counsel to the House managers of Donald's impeachment, and he is currently a candidate for Congress in New York's 10th district. But also, I think importantly, he's somebody who uh, understands how the hallways and stairways in Congress work. <laughs> Welcome, Dan. How are you? Great to be here with you, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's a better time to have you on, uh, given everything that's been happening. So I, I have a feeling we're going to be talking a lot about what's happening in uh, these hearings. What, what are your um, takeaways so far, just from the, the process in general, before we get into specifics? Well, I'm incredibly impressed uh, with the presentation of the materials. I, I, it's very hard I think for the average, you know, non-lawyer, non-investigator to understand what goes into putting on a hearing like this, and to do it in, with such in such high quality, um, with weaving in the video uh, depositions and the testimony and the other video and the text messages and. Uh, and the decisions that go into every single little thing that you do or don't do. And remember, there are over a thousand interviews that this committee has done. They have over a hundred thousand documents. To put it in perspective, we, you know, we worked around the clock for our first impeachment hearings and we had 17 witnesses total. So, and, and very few documents because um, your, your favorite uncle refused to uh, turn them over. Right. Um, so, you know, we, it's, it's an incredible undertaking that they've done to distill all of this information into a really powerful presentation that is not too cumbersome. It's not too long. It's really punchy. It's really to the point, And it really captures the essence, I think, of what was going on in different threads of their investigation. So I, I've just been incredibly impressed with the actual presentation of the first three hearings. I have two. And uh, first, I, you're right. I need to specify that you were lead counsel for the first impeachment because he was impeached twice. Um, <laughs> not, not a minor detail. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and I know that many people, including me, have been very impatient. Um, it's been a long time uh, that, that, this has been in the works, but now we, I think we understand why it wasn't simply about gathering the material. And again, uh, under difficult circumstances, there was so much pushback. Um, so many of the most important witnesses refused, uh, the, you know, a lot of time was wasted, uh, trying to get them to cooperate, which of course they ended up not, most of them ended up not doing. And then there is putting together a compelling narrative for people who don't have the luxury of paying so much attention. Um, but I wanted to ask you, before we get into 
the potential consequences for these hearings and, uh, you know, what we might have to look forward to. We saw that the committee released video, I think it was yesterday, of uh, Representative Milk giving a quote-unquote tour. Um, and the reason I'm bringing it up right now, because I know that the committee hasn't gotten to it yet and it will happen, is that they this video has been available for 17 months, give or take. And, you know, the, we lay people don't understand, you know, what the restrictions are. Um, we don't necessarily have any patience for the fact that legal time grinds so slowly. So is there any utility in holding back such evidence for so long? Because what worries me is that in the interim, the entirety of the Republican Party, generally speaking, has had a chance to decide that January 6th wasn't a big deal and that they'll back Donald for uh, a candidacy in 2024. And a lot, and the movement in some ways has uh, grown bigger and more powerful. Look, there are real reasons um, why you withhold evidence until an appropriate time to release it. The investigator in me, um, you know, understands that and understands that sort of political time, uh, as you say, versus legal time, you know, should not matter. Um, the congressional candidate in me recognizes, though, that, you know, the, the narrative matters. I guess I don't know the answer as to whether the delay has been bad because now it is all coming out and it is coming out hard. It is yeah. coming out very persuasively, very powerfully. Donald Trump looks worse than he probably ever has uh, since he started running for, you know, first into politics, uh, which is a very, very high bar. But, um, and, or you know, we're going in, depending on <laughs> right. <laughs> we're going into, you know, the election season in, in November. So, but, but just from an investigative standpoint, the reason why you keep all your evidence to yourself is multifaceted. First of all, you know, in a situation like this, nobody, even the journalists who cover this day to day are, is likely to read. 1,000 trans deposition transcripts. I mean, it really is incumbent upon the committee to present it to the American public in a coherent way. And that takes time, even if you have the transcripts. But it also takes time because one interview leads to the next, which leads to the next. And then you have additional questions. And you can only really figure out what the most salient and important parts of any interview or deposition is after you have all the evidence. And then the other reason is if you, you do not ever want to release uh, witness interviews to the public when other witnesses could get access to them, because what invariably will happen is that you will have witnesses who will try to tailor their testimony to mm -hmm. whatever is already out there. Yeah. You want witnesses to testify without any knowledge as to what anyone else is saying because that's really how you get to the truth. You don't want them to shade their testimony so that it is consistent with what someone else has said. 
And so that is an investigative reason why you do not want to release this stuff piecemeal, even though from a PR standpoint, you know, if we could all soak in one nugget every day, that would be great. Um, But practically speaking, that is not good for the investigation. And I think in the end, you know, the public, maybe not you and me and others who are really immersed in this on a day-to-day basis and read up on it and keep following it. But, you know, we are we are very few and far between when you consider the 300 plus million Americans who are who yeah. are out there. And so I do think that in the end, the way that this committee has done it, they have moved at lightning pace. Look, we should talk about DOJ uh, as well, yes. which has moved at a glacial pace. And so there is a real distinction there. But we should not lump the January 6th committee into the snail's pace of the DOJ, because uh, what they have done in a nine-month period of time is truly extraordinary. But Dan, I I think another important thing about that is the committee has given us some insight into their process, which has been incredibly helpful for those of us who are so terrified that people won't be held accountable. And the DOJ has said nothing. And I think that does create a lot of um, anxiety, uh, which the committee has managed, I think, pretty well. I think the committee has managed it well. And, you know, I'm happy to get into, because I've had experience, obviously, being both a prosecutor, but also being a impeachment investigator in Congress. So I do understand the difference between the two and the different and competing tensions and interests that are there. But one thing I will say that is important to remind everyone is it is hard to get true and full accountability from a congressional committee like the January 6th Select Committee. Because even unlike in the impeachment we did, where impeachment was on the table, there's there's no actual punishment available to the January 6th Committee. Um, it is very important, I think, for transparency, which is a critical role of Congress. It is important for the historical record. It is important to lay the foundation to understand what happened in the event that there needs to be new legislation, including whether the Electoral Count Act should be uh, revised. Um, and it's important to inform the American public, which ultimately you know, will go to the ballot boxes in this November and in 2024. And it's important for everyone to understand what transpired so they can be as informed as possible. The other thing, though, that I was just thinking a little bit about uh, this week as these hearings are sort of coming out, I think, at a good pace, um, you know, two a week seems about right to me. Three was very aggressive. I think it was really good they canceled yesterday. Yeah, it's 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 a lot to digest. And Mm -hmm. I think that uh, they've done they should they've done such a good job that in presenting it that they should let it simmer for a couple of days after each one. But. What this is doing, because it is so powerful and it is so persuasive, and they're so smartly sort of um, targeting specific issues with each hearing, is I think it is helping to give some cover to DOJ if they do ultimately want to charge top officials. Because what I think is going to happen, and and obviously there's, you know, the 30% of the country that... uh, is you know stuck in the mud and either doesn't have access to see it because Fox News doesn't run air it or the right wing media you know ignores it or focuses on you know the 
golden eagle sconce or whatever it is that Loudermilk was talking about, um, you know, or I'm sure there's some Hunter Biden story today, but the 30% either hasn't seen it or just doesn't believe it. They will come up with every conspiracy theory that Donald Trump floats and they'll yeah. believe anything he says for whatever reason. So you're never going to reach them, but there is that middle part, 20% or so that is, you know, not set in their ways is could, could be swayed. And I think what happens with a powerful presentation like we've seen is that, that more people feel like something bad happened on January 6th. And it wasn't your normal sort of like bad political thing. It was a, a threat, as Judge Ludwig said today, unlike any that our democracy has ever seen before. And if people start to understand the gravity of what happened, it takes a little bit of the, uh, it, it takes a little bit away from the inevitable arguments from Donald Trump and others around him that any prosecution is partisan. Because if you don't have an audience for that, because they actually have seen what happened in a, in a presentation like we've seen, and they are persuaded to some extent that something really bad happened, whether or not it's criminal, they don't know. If you actually charge it criminally, there's a lot more of like, yeah, that makes sense. That seems like it was pretty serious and was a crime, what we saw from the January 6th committee. So in some ways, I do think these presentations gives DOJ, um, give DOJ a little bit more cover to do what, whatever is right, which is really all that DOJ should and will do. Yeah, uh, I, I hear that. And I think, again, the committee is doing such an incredible job of making the case that it's, um, it would be at this point bizarre, quite frankly, if DOJ decided that it's not worth doing anything about. Um, but, you know, there's nothing we can do about that. DOJ will do what it does at its own pace. And I guess, technically speaking, Merrick Garland and has until January 2025, um, theoretically. Um, January 2026. That's probably a five-year statute of limitations. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, but that's assuming that he's still uh, attorney general. Good point. Have you ever had an acne breakout come at the worst possible time? Almost all of us have. And if we're parents of teenagers, we've definitely been through that. Uh, I know that my daughter was always concerned that before a presentation in school that her skin look as good as humanly possible. We've all had our struggles with our skin, and that's why I'm really excited to partner with Apostrophe, the sponsor of this episode. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne. And at Apostrophe, an expert dermatology team will create a personalized treatment plan perfectly tailored to you. All you need to do is fill out Apostrophe's online quiz about your skin goals and your medical history, then snap a few selfies and a board-certified dermatologist will create your initial customized treatment plan. Apostrophe treats all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne, even chest and back acne, anywhere you have breakouts. 
They literally treat breakouts from head to toe. Their user experience is amazing, and I've loved how easy it is to get customized treatment from a real dermatologist in minutes. We have a special deal for our audience. Save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash Mary when you use our code Mary. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash Mary and click begin visit, then use our code Mary at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's apostrophe.com slash Mary and use that code Mary to get your first dermatologist crafted treatment plan for $5. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring this podcast. Look, I think I think the timeline for the DOJ investigation, which you know I, I will be the first to say, has been far too slow. I last August, I was one of the very first people who called for a DOJ investigation into the coup attempt because it became it was even at that point before we knew very much, it was becoming very clear that this was a concerted effort to try to overturn the election. Yeah, and that is a conspiracy crime. That is a conspiracy to defraud the United States. Um, by impairing a lawful function of government, which is uh, commonly referred to as a a 371 conspiracy. And it's frankly, it's a charge that Mueller used in both of his indictments against the two groups of Russians who tried to interfere in the 2016 election. So it has some recent precedent in in a high-level investigation. And they've just gone way too slow. And I think probably, you know, if you were to take the senior officials at DOJ and, you know, put them in a room and give them the truth serum, they would acknowledge that it has taken them too long to get around to this. But I do think they are, they're clearly investigating it. I mean, they've asked the January 6th committee for their, their transcripts. Uh, they, they are sending subpoenas out. We know they're looking into the fake electors. Um, I, but I do. I would. I would caution this. There's no chance they're going to charge anything before this November's elections. Anyone who thinks that is completely wrong. Yeah. I, I think they're going to have. They've got about a year, uh, realistically, because I think they've got to figure out whether or not they're going to do this by next spring, because then it really does start to get into the campaign pretty deeply, um, and they should. They need to figure this out one way or another. The other thing to say, and, and you know, we've seen it by the fact that January 6th committee has a thousand, over a thousand interviews. It is a massive, sophisticated, complex investigation. Mm-hmm. It is not as simple as just to say, oh, well, Liz Cheney said that Donald Trump did this, that, and the other thing, so therefore we should charge him with a crime. Um, to actually pre- prepare and present admissible evidence, which requires the actual witness to testify to firsthand knowledge not hearsay, not what someone else told them, um, and to be able to put it all together, understanding all the different nuances and nooks and crannies is a very, very cumbersome, detailed, complicated process. And so we are going to have to have some patience, mm-hmm. but I do think that uh, you know everybody should be conti- keeping the pressure up in a, you know, in a, in a respectful way because at the end of the day, to your point, I think what has come out, and I say this as you know a pro- former prosecutor, 
that it seems to me, based on what we've seen and subject to unknown contrary evidence that we haven't seen, uh, and by the way, that does not include Donald Trump's allegations that the, there was election fraud in 2020. That is not contrary evidence, no matter how many times he says it. Um, that I think the only reason Merrick Garland would not charge this would be for a political reason, which is to say that he is concerned about charging a president of the United States with a crime for the first time in history. And he has, he was very open and very clear when he took over as attorney general that he wanted to depoliticize the Department of Justice that Donald Trump had so politicized along with Bill Barr. Um, but if he doesn't charge Trump, I think that is a political decision because I yes. think the evidence is there. And if the evidence is there, you need to charge him. I'm so glad you said that because it is one of the things that's really concerned me, not just vis-a-vis the DOJ, but also vis-a-vis Democrat, uh, congressional Democrats. So with Garland, he wants to depoliticize this institution that's become highly politicized and seems, or at least for a long time, seemed not to understand that not charging, despite mountains of evidence, would also be a political decision. Um or potentially could be seen as a political decision when, you know, correct me if I'm wrong because I don't know, but one, a a prosecutor doesn't make a decision about whether or not to prosecute based on how other people are going to react. Is that, is that fair? That is a, that is is generally exactly right. And even if that were the case, um, I, I think it's pretty short-sighted for anybody to think that deciding not to charge would have less serious consequences if indeed the criminality is as widespread and serious as this committee is showing us that it is, right? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, when Ford pardoned Nixon, You know, there was a feeling at the time uh, that it is the the consequences for Richard Nixon were already so severe that additional prosecution, which probably at that point would not have resulted in significant jail time, it was not worth sucking up all the oxygen in Washington, D.C. It was not worth putting the country through you know, a difficult trial with an ex-president, which, and, and I, you could make, you could see how in those circumstances, Nixon in many respects had been disgraced, had paid his dues and was, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say he was fully contrite, but certainly more contrite than your uncle. Um, he, mm-hmm. uh, he, he, you can see why Ford would do that. And I don't think there's any question that there were some of those same calculations will have to be considered by Merrick Garland. Um, to, you, you, you can't ignore the fact that it would be the first prosecution against a president of the United States in, in history. I mean, that even if you're just focusing on the facts and the law and the evidence, as, as uh, Merrick Garland says over and over and over whenever he's asked about these questions, and he's absolutely right, and he should repeat that until the cows come home, but it's impossible to ignore the fact that he is the president of the United States. And it's impossible to, you know, think that through. I just think in the end, as we're saying, if you feel like you've got 
the facts and the evidence to support a criminal prosecution. Um, I, I think given the gravity of what the crime is that we're talking about, you know, I mean, this is, I would draw a distinction between overturning an election and obstruction of justice in the Mueller report, mm-hmm. right? Like you can, you can make a pretty clear and distinct argument that, you know what, you know, that was, that was in the past. It is serious. I'm not one to belittle obstruction of justice crimes because often they are, they are undertaken solely to prevent the underlying substantive crime to be proven. So right. I don't buy this. Oh, it's just a process crime. It's not the actual crime. Well, the whole point of it is to prevent you from proving the actual crime. But still, you know, that related to sort of a, a different investigation. Um, it's just not as serious mm-hmm. as trying to install yourself as a dictator and over and undermine <laughs> overturn an election, undermine democracy and everything not that quite. we stand for. You can't really think of any conduct more serious and severe than that in our for a president. Um, and you know. It, 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 at least at president using his his position as president as opposed to you know shooting it, someone on fifth avenue which is a separate story but yeah anyway well, so i, I do yeah. think there's a significant distinction and i just don't buy that under almost any circumstances it's not worth the the backlash if they can prove that donald trump orchestrated this conspiracy yeah and another big difference is you know when it came to nixon uh it was, the cover-up was worse than the crime. And the crime was literally having some guy break into an office and steal some of the stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, he, then you, right. The, I mean, yes, using the FBI and the CIA is part yeah. of the cover-up. Right, you're right, but it was yeah. part of the cover-up, yeah. But in this case, I the crime is, the cover-up's terrible, but the crime is still the worst crime that's ever can, been committed right. uh, against the United States by somebody who's part of the government. I mean, at least, you know, Robert E. Lee, uh, attacked us from without, uh, as opposed to from within. Um, but it, that is, um, one of the things that is, is worrisome that Garland and again, the congressional Democrats will use, uh, well, let's just focus on the congressional Democrats for a second, because I think they, I don't know that Garland needs to be convinced he's going to do what he's going to do. Um, I, personally hope that the committee doesn't refer anything because that would seem political, but that, you know, that's up to them. But I want the committee to convince congressional Democrats how serious this is because we're, we're living in this time when they could get rid of the filibuster, but they're clinging to this entirely anti-democratic mechanism in order to save democracy, which is not how it's going to work. So it's almost as if they're ignoring what's at stake because they don't want to make a bold move. Um, And that bold move, by the way, would be to make the Senate um, a democratic institution itself. So do you think, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure the most of the impeachment managers aren't thinking about that, but Shouldn't that be something that we we have in mind here? Because Democrats really are the only it's the only party right now who can um, do anything substantive to uh, protect democracy or will do anything substantive, I should say. Um, 
So I think there are a couple of, of things about that. Um, one is that the, first of all, I agree with you about a criminal referral. Uh, there's no point. Right. What is the point? They're already investigating it. So all you're doing, you know that the attack from the from Donald Trump and, and his associates is going to be that this is a partisan witch hunt. They, there's no question that it's going to be, oh, Joe Biden's going after Donald Trump. That is what they're going to say no matter what. There's no merit to that. And Merrick Garland has been very, for that reason, Merrick Garland's been very smart to just say we're following the facts and the law. We'll never be able to point to anything that he says that would indicate there's any kind of partisan tinge to it. And in fact, everything he has said has been designed to remove any kind of partisanship from the Department of Justice. But if Congress and if this this committee, um, no matter what, it doesn't even matter. I mean, it has certainly been validated as a legitimate committee by courts, you know, all over the country. Uh, there's no question that it is lawfully authorized and it is legitimate. It was Kevin McCarthy's own stupidity that he didn't put any of his members on there so that there's part of the reason these hearings are so great is you don't have these right. sort of absurd grandstanding Republicans, you know, mm -hmm. talking about Hunter Biden when we're talking about January 6th, which is, you know, obviously what we had during the first impeachment. Yep. Um, and that was just Kevin McCarthy's stupidity and lack of foresight uh, mm -hmm. to do that. Now they just have the entire field with people, you know, who are, who are appropriately, and objectively investigating this because, as you will note, none of these witnesses are Democrats. They are all Republicans. They're almost all Trump officials, Trump appointees. Every single uh, piece of information that we have gotten to this point has been from Trumpers. So, you know, it's not these these uh, committee members are not the ones who are testifying as to the facts. They are presenting the testimony of others, and those others are Republicans. But regardless, yep. Congress is a political body. If Congress refers for uh, criminally refers their investigation to the Department of Justice, they are giving weak, it is, but they are giving some ammunition to the um, to the uh, to the Trumpers and et cetera, who will want to cry, cry partisanship. And since there's no benefit to doing it, literally none, um, that doesn't seem to be worth the cost if there's no benefit. But, you know, in terms of how it will impact um, the filibuster of the Senate or the congressional Democrats, I, I don't know. You know, um, I hope they address in these hearings, uh, and Judge Ludwig did at the tail end, but I hope they really do have some sort of summary of all of the laws around the country that um, have been passed in order to allow partisan elected officials in, specific, in whichever states have passed these laws to overturn the will of the people. And essentially to be able to dictate which of the electors shall be certified by the state. And that was obviously, we, we heard of a lot about that today in today's hearing about how in Arizona, as an example, and Greg Jacob, the uh, counsel to Vice President Pence, went down and explained that 
you know, the, the, the states all have a procedure for certifying their electors and which um, ticket they're on, the, the Democrat, Biden or Trump, right? Mm-hmm. And only one state of it, there's only one process that that could be done. So the reason why this fake elector scheme is so nefarious is they were not certified by their state, yet they right. sent a letter to Pence, to Congress, to the archives to say, we are the certified electors. And the idea was, oh, Mike Pence gets up there and says, well, I have two sheets of certified electors, one for Biden and one for Trump. Well, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to have to send it back to the states for them to figure it out. I mean, it's a complete fraud. But what these laws are trying to do is essentially to, at the state level, allow someone to just choose whichever electors he or she wants, regardless of what the vote was and who actually won the election. That is scary. And that is going on around the country. And where where they failed in 2020, they are gearing up to succeed in 2024. And it's a big part, frankly, of the reason why I'm running for Congress is I am very concerned that January 6th was the beginning, not the end of the effort to undermine our democracy. And so I really do think it's important for the January 6th committee to address the future and what have we seen from January 6th until now that is continuing the same mentality that led us to January 6th. Yeah, it's such a good point. And there's so much there, but I, I want to focus for a second on um, the, something that really worries me. Um, as you said, every single witness uh, every single person who testified, every single person whose depositions we saw was not just a Republican, but a Republican who supported Donald and or worked in his administration, which is great in terms of um, in terms of fighting back against the partisan uh, accusations of partisanship, which are, of course, nonsense. On the other hand, though, um, you know, we saw the other day, it was sort of the focus was a lot on Ru- Rudolph Giuliani. Today, a lot of the focus was on John Eastman. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, the, the committee is trying to throw them under the bus to, to get Donald off the hook, quite, quite the opposite. They're, they're using them, they're going after them to get them and Donald because, and, and making it clear that they were aware of, of the lie and so was Donald. However, um, the people whose testimony we're hearing and who are showing up in person are people who knew at the time, as they're telling us how bad things were. Uh, Some of them at the time went on Fox news and perpetuated the big lie, perpetuated this idea that uh, the real crime was being made by Democrats who were making a big deal out of January sex. And the rest of them at the time said nothing. So, I worry that this is going to afford the Republican Party in general an opportunity to pretend that it was just all Donald and they can wash their hands of it, even though, of course, we know that they were entirely complicit. Are you worried about that or am I just being paranoid? You know, 
Um, I think that would be a good problem to have. Hmm. And I say that because I think if you cut the head of the snake off, that the rest of the snake will disappear and die. And Donald Trump is the head of the snake. So if we got to a point where the Republicans all turned on Donald Trump and sent him out to pasture, even if they end up being able to figure out a way to launder their own reputation and resurrect themselves, um, I, which I would object to, but I would mm-hmm. take that trade is, I guess, my point. Hmm. Will they be able to? I, I don't think so. Uh, not certainly not to the degree to which they would want. And I think when you start to see what the part of the reason is you start to see this louder milk stuff and you see McCarthy and Jordan and Banks and Perry, all of them flout a lawfully authorized committee of their own body. When they, if and when they expect when, if they take over, and I, I sincerely hope they don't, but if they take over the majority of the house next year, they will initiate every investigation under the sun uh, for anything. Except this one. With. Well, of course, except <laughs> this one. Um, and they will want to issue subpoenas. And they are going to want to rely on the validity and authority of those subpoenas. And when Jim Jordan is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and he issues an opinion, a subpoena from the Judiciary Committee to get someone to testify what on earth is he going to say to someone who says, nah, I don't really want to come in and testify. You know what, Jim, you didn't come in and testify when you were subpoenaed by a committee of the house. So why should I, I hope people do that because he deserves it. Um, and frankly, it's, it is disconcerting, you know, for me as someone who tried to rely on congressional subpoenas when I was doing the investigation and hopes to be back in Congress where I, I hope I will want to rely on their validity. Um, I think prior to Donald Trump, no one ever questioned the validity or authority enforcement authority of a congressional subpoena. But it's one of the things that he exposed by claiming in June of 2019, I'm going to defy all the subpoenas as if he were king and he just didn't have to answer to Congress. Right. You know, we're, we're in a little bit of a different place. And there's, uh, you know, the, the damage that Trump has reeked on everything in our government is so wide and extreme. Um, and a lot of it we forget because January 6th and the, and the effort to overturn the election was so far beyond the pale of anything one, anyone could ever imagine. Yeah. But, you know, he's really, uh, he's really shaken the foundations of our democracy and he continues to do so. And that's a big part of the reason why I want to get back in the arena so that you know, we, we have people who are really standing up for our democracy. Yeah, I, I, it is almost beyond imagining what, what happened. And I do think that that's why it's, it's, caught, it's, it's brought a lot of people up short. It's caught them, gotten them wrong-footed. And I think it's so, it's so human to want to cling to what is familiar. Uh, but in the face of this, I don't think it's reasonable for Democrats anymore to be able to say, you know, bipartisanship is the thing we should most want. No, <laughs> when, you know, an entire party uh, wants to seize power illegitimately forever. Um, and while also claiming that 
any Democrats who are for LGBTQ rights are groomers and pedophiles. And, um, you know, that, 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 um, teaching critical race theory is, you know, un-American or whatever horrible racist things they say. And I, I think one of, one of the things Democrats need to do, and I'm, I'm curious, uh, since you are, um, you want to get you're you're running for office and full disclosure you're running for office in in the district in which i live um do you think that democrats need to meet these things head on in other words i i've seen people i respect like uh hakeem jeffries and eric swalwell when asked about the groomers and pedophiles comments and um other other slurs uh, and lies being spread by Republicans, they say, you know, we don't want to engage that. We don't want to go there. We, Americans aren't interested in that. They're interested in, in kitchen table issues. But we see how that worked out in Virginia when nobody was calling Glenn Youngkin a racist, which is was his entire platform. Do you think that we need more of the pushing back and more fighting and, and better messaging on those kinds of things? You know, it, yes, it's interesting. I mean, I would actually say that Eric Swalwell and Hakeem Jeffries are two of the most aggressive and best. That's uh, why messengers. I was so surprised. I was yeah, so surprised I mean, by that. Um, so, but but look, I, I, that is where I'm coming from. I I, I don't believe that the current uh, Republican Party is acts in good faith. I don't believe they're good faith partners. And so the old playbook of trying to sit down at lunch with them in the Capitol cafeteria and see if we could hash out a deal to get some legislation passed, it just doesn't work anymore because they have zero interest in getting anything done. I mean, it dated even before Donald Trump was president when Mitch McConnell basically said he was going to try to hold up every single thing that Obama wanted to do so that he could say he did nothing as president when he was up for re-election. Uh, it is their MO. And so the, the notion of playing nice in the sandbox, I think, has gotten Democrats nowhere. Right. And so we need to be much more aggressive. We need to meet them where they are with their aggression, with our own aggressiveness, mm -hmm. our own strong response. And we have to figure out creative and new ways to actually get stuff done. Um, and I think that, you know, the reason why we got some gun control, even as, as minimal as it, as it was, and it remains to be seen whether it will actually prevail, is because the two biggest mass shootings that occurred, you know, within two weeks of each other, completely undermined the NRA talking points that Republicans routinely trot out. The shooter in Buffalo was not mentally ill at all. And in fact, was a, 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 a I mean, not, not mentally ill, but a, just a, a despicable anti-Semitic racist. Um, and so the notion, oh, we just need more mental health treatment. It's not the people, it's the guns. It's like, no, this guy had no mental health issues. And then the other big talking point is, oh, well, we really just need to have more armed you know, guards, et cetera, to prevent it. Well, we had that in Uvalde and they chickened out and wouldn't even go in to try to get the guy. So that doesn't work either. Well, so and we, we had it in Buffalo, but the armed guard was murdered. Right. 
So awesome. yeah, you know, and and I think that you're absolutely right in Uvalde that they didn't do anything because they were afraid of the weapon that's legal for anybody over the age of eighteen to buy. Yes, without I any, mean, you know, a a police handgun is no match for an AR-15. Um, so it doesn't matter, you know, a teacher's handgun, whatever it is, like you're not giving AR-15s out to everybody to use, and it's just no match. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point uh, of an AR-15, which don't get me started on this. But yeah. in any event, the point I'm making is it wasn't because, you know, Chris Murphy, who I love and admire tremendously, was finally able to convince John Cornyn that Murphy is right and Cornyn was wrong. No, it was none of that. It had to do with the specific circumstances and the public outcry that was starting to have an impact on their own constituents that made them move. And so the the whole playbook that has existed for too long, it just doesn't work anymore. You've got to go around the Republicans and you have to apply pressure to them where it matters, which is their own special interests or their own constituents. And that is the only way that they're going to move. And so the message needs to be much more aggressive, I think, from Democrats more broadly and much more creative because we can't just go and directly at the the Republicans, because they're not acting in good faith. They're not trying to work out a deal. They're bad faith actors trying to maintain their power and trying to undermine anything that Democrats want to do. And if that's the case, then we got to figure out a different way. Now, if, if I'm down there and a Republican wants to get something done with me on an issue that you know I and Democrats care about, great. No, no one is going to look a gift horse in the mouth. Right. But you just can't start, you can't operate from the premise that, oh yeah, like I'm operating in good faith, trying to reach a, a deal to get something done, even if it isn't everything I want. You know, Congress is our political political system is created so that we don't have these extreme swings and that things generally move incrementally. Well, I'm open to that, you know, as a as a, a practical Democrat. But if and if a Republican is great, but I'm not going to convince a Republican that I'm right and they're wrong. Right. as it used to happen. Or I'm not going to convince them that, you know what, you want this and I want that. So let's figure out a way we can both get what we want or some of what we want. At this point, the Republican Party pretty much wants nothing. They, they, they don't have a policy platform and they don't seem to have any policy ideas. All yeah. they want is both power so that they can put judges on in the, in the court and they can make, they can regress all the progress that we've made over, you know, 200 years. And that that does seem to be their sole vision in life <laughs> at this point, just to turn back the clock um, between Roe and and uh, all sorts of other thing hor- horrors that are coming our way in the next couple of weeks. Thanks to this, I think uh, not just extreme but illegitimate Supreme Court. Um, but to that point, it seems you know if you kind of step back and look at it objectively. There are so many things happening that should position the Democrats really well for the midterms. Uh, the gun issue. I mean, we it the the Republicans, despite this agreement, and let's be clear, nothing's passed yet. Right. You know, and who knows how watered down it will be before that, if it even ever does pass, because that's usually what happens. They wait for us to forget and get complacent, and then they say, yeah, no, that's, no, mm -mm. everybody should be able to have any gun they want at all times, everywhere. So, um, 
the, the Republicans are basically against 70 to 90 percent of Americans on this issue, depending this, what the specific issue is about guns. Um, 70 percent of Americans don't want Roe and Casey overturned. And now we have this extraordinary committee doing this work, making it pretty clear that the Republican Party, generally speaking, is okay with um, insurrection and with overturning the results of a free and fair election, as long as it's to their benefit. So long way of prefacing the question, which is, why does it feel that this isn't even close to being in the bag for us when it's mind-blowing to me that a tribute, like the fact that Herschel Walker is running neck and neck with Raphael Warnock, who is not just a, a good, decent man, but an excellent senator. What is going on? Um, yeah, I can't explain that one uh, at all to you, the, the Georgia Senate race. Um, but other than I just think that people are so fractured with Republican, Democrat, and the, um, I think very few people who are supporting Herschel Walker really have dug into the issues or know where he stands. It's more of a proxy fight with, you know, mm. Donald Trump versus the Democrats. Yeah. But look, I do think that as these midterms come along, that Democrats are going to need to, again, more aggressively promote the accomplishments and the gains that the party has gotten. One of the problems I think the Democratic Party has is because it's a party of ideas, not a party of power, there are lots of ideas and there are lots of different people with different ideas. And there are lots of folks within the tent who want this or that issue. And it is, you know, it's, it can be a little muddy sometimes in terms yeah. of hashing out how, what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. And so you know, when you have a lot of ideas and a lot of people want things to, to get past, they people will be upset if their pet project or something that means a lot to them is left on the cutting room floor. And so all too often you end up people end up focusing on what they didn't get rather than on what we as a country, as a party, as a nation got. And so, you know, I, I think these debates are really important, but I think it will be very helpful for everyone to get behind the accomplishments rather than harp on what hasn't happened yet. And then second of all, the bottom line is inflation is through the roof. Gas prices are through the roof. You know, this impacts every American in a profound way. And it's hard when people are struggling to, you know, pay their rent or get their groceries or, you know, make enough money to get the, the goods and, and services that they're used to getting because their money's not going as far anymore. And they're worried just about, you know, whether they're going to be able to cover their expenses with their next paycheck. It's very hard to talk about a lot of other things when people are just trying to live day to day. So, you know, th there is a reason why Jim, you know, James Carville said it's the economy stupid in 1992. I mean, it's it's not a new idea, um, but it, it is a shame in many respects because the economy is doing really well, right? And unemployment is incredibly low, and the bounce back under Joe Biden from the doldrums at the end of the Trump administration is truly remarkable. It's unlike anything that we've ever seen in history, but it's just not being felt in the same way that it would 
if we didn't have this inflation and the supply chain issues, which are increasing the costs of common goods. But Dan, that that speaks to another uh, broader problem, which is that between the media failures and Republican Party obfuscation, there's no context. Um, you know, the 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 biggest thing, the, the thing that blows my mind is that the Biden administration has been treated as a normal administration that followed another normal administration and is being held to that standard as opposed to somebody who inherited three massive crises and has done an extraordinary job, I think, of dealing with them while, you know, saving the economy, getting people vaccinated and trying his best to shore up democracy. But at the same time, you know, you, the only thing that does seem to break through is, is inflation and high gas prices, understandably, because thanks to Republicans, a lot of people in this country don't have a living wage because I think the best way to combat inflation is with a living wage. But there, people don't, are, it's not explained to them. No American president has much control over inflation and almost zero control over gas prices. So it's, and yet by not explaining that, of course, the administration gets blamed. And structurally, the Democratic Party has so much going against it anyway that this this just makes it even more um, stressful, <laughs> shall we say, uh, because how do you com combat uh, those kinds of structural uh, disadvantages and failures to um, put things in their proper context for the American people? You raise a good point. I mean, it's always the case that a president gets too much credit when the economy is doing well and too little credit when, or, and too much blame when the economy is not mm -hmm. because, you know, the a president doesn't control gas prices or, you know, even, I mean, obviously doesn't control the Fed. So there's, uh, it's a, it is, it's a, it's an easy sort of euphemism to just say, oh, the president's control, it's the president's economy. But the bottom line is it's it's worked that way for both parties. Um, I think it's it would be hard to break through with your, of course, very rational explanation as to why the president doesn't actually have so much control over the things that you're worried about. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, people look to the president for a lot more than what the president can actually be and deliver. So, you know, sometimes that's for good and sometimes that's for bad. Um, but I, you, you raise really interesting ideas. And um, look, I think part of, you know, what, what I hope people start to realize through January 6th committee uh, hearings, you know, when this Dobbs opinion comes out from the Supreme Court, uh, there's going to be, you know, there's a big gun case out of New York that's going to come out from the Supreme Court, which, you know, may allow for uh, concealed weapons to yeah, I be forgot about that you know, one. carried around New York when, you know, where we live. And um, I think it is a, it's a real, it's going to be a real punch in the gut to see the state of our democracy, the regression in our fundamental rights and our democratic values, our core values are at the lowest in many respects than they've been in more than 50 years. I mean, so much of the progress that we have made over the last 50 years has been erased by Donald Trump uh, through stealing, you know, the, the court seats that he has and putting 
zealots in there. Um, and uh, for January 6th, I mean, for this entire anti-democratic fervor that has just consumed and swept the Donald Trump Republican Party. Um, and it's unlike anything I think anyone has seen. And, and it's hard, you know, you and I pay attention. We, we see this. And it raises such alarm bells, you know, that we want to do something about it. For a lot of people, their reaction to it is to just turn away. I just don't want to deal with this. I don't want to, I can't really, I don't know how to process it all. I can't really believe it's as bad as people are saying it's, it is. It can't possibly be that bad. So, you know what? I'm just going to sort of, I, I don't like to see television. I don't like to see mass murder after mass murder on my screen. I don't like to see all of this anti-democratic stuff on January 6th or whatever it is. So I'm just going to try to, I'm just going to withdraw. And that's a scary place. I mean, I think if anything, what we all need to do, and certainly what I'm trying to do by running for Congress, is we need to engage more, not less. And we need to have a free exchange of ideas. We need to be addressing things head on. We need to be involved and we need to care because more than ever before, this is the existential crisis of our generation is what is going to happen with our democracy. It's never been under threat like this since the creation of it. Well, except for the Civil War. But, um, you know, maybe in 1886 to some extent. But in any event, the point is that, you know, we are, we're in a very, very unusual and, you know, certainly unprecedented modern history time. And um, we need people to become more engaged because I think that's the only way that we win out. We ultimately win out over, you know, those who don't believe in democracy or don't believe in individual rights, don't believe in uh, the right to choose, you know, don't believe in, in lifting people up, lifting everybody up, you know. I mean, this whole unbelievably infuriating great replacement theory as an example, you know, that's, that's such a regression to a place that we were – we weren't even there 50 years ago. And I think right. that we have to take it head on. We have to recognize this is going on and we can't withdraw. We got to take it head on. And hopefully more people start to do that. And we start to, to squash the thread of those sentiments that perhaps were underlying for many years, but have now come out uh, very strongly. Well, you, you are engaging in, in a way that um, a lot of people don't and uh, or choose not to, uh, and you're running for Congress. Uh, so I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what got you there. Um, I mean, besides the potential end of American democracy. Uh, I know that's probably a huge <laughs> motivator. <laughs> um, and and also, um, besides the fact that it, it appears that your logo and my logo has exactly the same color palette which is just a coincidence, but <laughs> I do like it though. I'm, I'm admiring the uh, the head shot you have there with the uh, the glasses. I think I, I I don't think I could pull that off as well, but I really do like it. Um, um, but but you know, color palette aside, I uh, it is one of the reasons your race is fascinating is is purely um, structural because of all the the madness of the redrawing of. New York State's maps, which has thrown so many things into chaos. Uh, you've got people running in districts they 
you have people who are already in Congress running in di- for districts they don't represent right now, and incumbents having to run against each other and incumbents moving to other. It's just incredible. So um, I think it's good, that, you know, all all congressional races in New York are going to be kind of uh, uh, amazing to watch. But I really, um, I, I'm really eager to hear about, you know, what what got you to take this step and and kind of what your platform is and how do you see it fitting in uh, to sort of an overarching message? Because we, we know, you know, midterms are all local elections. However, uh, we need to have kind of a unified message, especially the Democrats who, as you mentioned earlier, such a diverse big tent. Yeah. Well, you know, when I came back from Washington, D.C. after the impeachment uh, a little over two years ago, you know, I didn't think I would be running for Congress to get back there. I felt like, you know, even though uh, Donald Trump had been acquitted by the Senate, a number of the Republican senators acknowledged that we proved our case and they were just going to let the voters decide. Mm-hmm. And I felt like we had we had shown that he really did abuse his power for his own personal interest and that the voters would take that into consideration. And I think they did. And he lost. Well, he didn't accept that, of course, as we know all too well now. And so the steady decline of Democratic fealty in the Republican Party has really, really scared me. And, you know, it, as a strong proponent for our fundamental democratic values, for the rule of law, for good and bad, you know, uh, we, we need to adhere to these very baseline values that we have, and they're going in the wrong direction. And so I felt compelled to try, I do feel compelled to do something, whatever I can, to fight back against this anti-democratic, fascist, authoritarian uh, tenor or fervor that's going around the Republican Party. And in addition, you know, living in New York City, as, as you and I do, um, New York City is really struggling right now uh, in recovering from COVID and a, a really rampant and scary um, sort of crime wave. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got people just randomly being shot on the subways. You've got people randomly being thrown into, you know, car trunks and driven to out, you know, to remote places and shot and burned. I mean, it's it's a degree of insecurity that, you know, I certainly have not felt in this city in the nearly 25 years I've lived here. Um, and it's it's really, it is scary to me and scary to many people. That is far away the number one issue. Yeah. And I was a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor for 10 years. And prior to that, I was a contributor uh, to Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, which is the yes. seminal book on in- inequities and in mm-hmm. the criminal justice system. And I have I spent a lot of time before becoming a prosecutor really digging into the inequalities and inequities in the criminal justice system. And I think that those two experiences as a prosecutor and really, you know, working super closely with Michelle and and, you know, working a lot on felon disenfranchisement laws. I have a really good, sound understanding of our criminal justice system and ways that we can make, the ways that we can change things to make the city safer while also doing it in a compassionate way and Mm -hmm. getting more people out of the system, nonviolent offenders out of the system. Right. And so, 
I am the only one, you know, in my race that has any law enforcement experience. And I think there are many things that the federal government can do to help the crime wave, both in New York City and throughout the country, because it's not just in New York City that uh, where crime is going up. And so for me, it was feeling like we're in this existential moment around the country with democracy under attack and having been someone who led the impeachment investigation, was on the front lines, fighting for our democracy in Congress, and then someone with unique skills and experience related to public safety, uh, I, I felt somewhat compelled to get back in the arena to try to use my skills and experience to represent the people of our district and to make sure that uh, we preserve our democracy and that I can go down to Washington and be effective. You know, one of the things I talk a lot about on the on the trail is, you know, it wasn't just that I led the impeachment investigation. It's that we were pretty creative and we used a different strategy than the normal sort of congressional investigation strategy, which up to the point of impeachment had failed uh, because Donald Trump had defied all subpoenas. And yet we were able to use different tactics um, to, to actually coax the whistleblower complaint out of the White House to get that transcript of the, quote, perfect call, unquote, of, between Zelensky and Trump, to get 17 witnesses. And through all of that, we were able to prove our case in a way that no one else was able to do. And I say that only because I do exp hope to ex and expect to bring the same kind of creative new ideas and strategies to Congress to actually try to figure out a way to move forward some of the priorities that uh, so many Democrats are, are focused on and believe in. And I think we need a different way of doing things. And I think I've, I've brought a different way in a different context and been successful. And I hope to be able to bring that's those same views and approach, that same approach in this context to move things forward. Yeah. New York City, the greatest city on the planet, definitely needs needs some help because we are, as you say, struggling for all sorts of reasons. Um, when is the primary? The primary is August 23rd, exactly when everyone in New York City will not be will in not be here. Town. So go get your absentee vote. That's uh, right. Absentee ballot. Um, so it's a very quick race. You know, there's there are 15 yeah. people in the race. Bill de Blasio, former mayor, is in, in it. Um, so it's for a, reasons it's a good... that uh, have nothing to do with anything but his enormous ego. But that's my opinion. <laughs> I know what's his will, qualification. No He's like one of the worst. Sorry, I'll stop talking about that. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a huge field, which is also kind of interesting considering uh the short time frame but uh you know hopefully um i mean i i think it's pretty clear that that the field is is definitely split into a couple of different tiers um and that will certainly get clarified over time um but i i'd love to have you back uh before um and uh if you could let people know where to find you and we'll also yeah. put that information in the show notes as well. Great. Yeah, you can uh, catch me on Twitter da at Daniel S. Goldman or the website for the campaign is dangoldman4ny.com. And Mary, it's great to be with you. Always enjoy hearing you, getting your perspective, and uh, look forward to coming back on the show. Dan, it was such a pleasure. Good luck with the race. I'm so happy you're running. And uh you know, we, we need people in Congress speaking truth to power. So uh, thank you for, for doing it. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Great. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. 
What a day. Uh, thank you so much for hanging with us. Uh, I hope you all got to see our live stream of the hearings earlier today. Thank you to my guest, Dan Goldman, um, who, again, is running for Congress in New York's 10th district. Uh, and I hope you guys will continue to tune in. We're doing every single hearing as a live stream. We start a few minutes early to kind of set things up. Um, my panel stays throughout. Actually, my panel sort of changes. People come and go. We give commentary during the hearing as, as appropriate. And then, uh, you know, we have a wrap-up analysis. Afterwards, um, the people coming in to, to commentate have been, just been amazing. Uh, so please, if you can't catch us live, it, it's going to live on YouTube, uh, as does this show. Plus, of course, uh, our Tuesday strategy sessions, which are at youtube.com slash Politicon. 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And then next Thursday, our other interview show uh, is youtube.com slash Politicon at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And while you're uh, on the YouTube page, uh, please follow Politicon, like the episode, and um, cl click on the bell because that way you will uh, be notified every time a new episode drops or something else you know we're 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 starting to do some shorter pieces uh to keep people informed uh in between shows so uh definitely click on that bell also of course you can listen to the show in podcast form on apple or wherever you get your podcasts and please give the show a five star review because it really does help other people find us i uh, don't forget that you can always um email me at mary at .com. I love hearing from you. I love hearing your ideas for bumper stickers. And uh, that is a wrap for today. The next hearing, I believe, is at one o'clock next Tuesday, one o'clock Eastern time. We will be going live at 1245. And of course, we will be having a strategy session Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern. And um we're just going to keep going and hope that the January 6th Select Committee keep keeps doing the phenomenal job it's been doing so far. So thank you all so much for being here. And in the meantime, uh, stay safe and be kind.